Welcome to Unlocking Conflict, the podcast where we look at handling everyday tensions and disagreement better. This episode is all about non-violent communication, or NVC as it's sometimes known. We talked last episode about people as icebergs. The behaviour we see is like the tip of the iceberg, but underneath there's so much more going on. And when we look at that, we can transform conversations. Nonviolent communication is an approach that we found useful in our own lives to help us go under the surface. So this is just a brief introduction from us, but if you want to know more, we've put some useful links to the Centre for Nonviolent Communication and other NVC practitioners in the session notes for this episode. So let's begin. It's great to be here today with Sharon, Fiona and Stephen. Sharon, should we kick off with an introduction? What is nonviolent communication? It's a philosophy and a practice, I would say, that was developed by a psychologist called Marshall Rosenberg in the 1960s. It's been used in lots of different contexts. And it's based on the idea that all humans have the capacity for compassion and empathy. And they only resort to violence or behavior that causes harm to others when they don't see a more effective strategy for meeting their needs. So it's based on this idea that we all have universal human needs and we go about trying to meet those needs in different ways. All the needs are legitimate and authentic. However, clashes can arise when we adopt different strategies for meeting those needs. So the technique part of MVC is trying to use ways to compassionately connect with the other person to try and understand what needs might be driving their behavior and to connect with our own needs and what, how that's making us behave. And through that lovely process, find a way to connect and help both people to meet their needs. Okay, so it's about helping people to realise what's happening and what needs they have and different ways of meeting those needs. Yeah, so if you if you approach it with that mindset, so the first thing is it's a mindset and a philosophy, and you come into a conversation or an interaction with someone else with that mindset, bringing the curiosity that comes with that mindset, and then you use a technique which has effectively four steps to it. The first is to make an observation and it's a neutral observation of behavior that you can see or hear. The second is to think about the feelings that might be leading to that behavior. The third is what needs are being unmet that are leading to those feelings. And the fourth is to think Okay, what request might I make of the other person or what offer might I make to the other person to help those needs to be met? So if I, if I use a practical example, when I see you sitting in silence, I feel confused and frustrated because I need clarity about what's going on in your head. Would you be willing to have a conversation and let me know what's going on for you? So one, the observation, you're sitting there quietly, silently. Two, my feelings in response to seeing that. Three, how I feel and what my needs are in relation to seeing you like that. And then a request to help me meet my need for clarity. But embedded in that is also potentially an offer to connect with you because I'm actually wondering what's going on for you. 
rather than saying, why are you just sitting there with your lips closed looking like an ice cream? I see. <laughs> so it's almost an alternative way of approaching a situation and, and connecting with the other person through the words that we speak. Yes, I think so. And sometimes more overt examples are used where you might say, when I hear a door slamming, I feel nervous because I need to feel safe in my own house. Would you be willing to just close the door gently, even if you're really cross when we finish a conversation? So is NVC something that you can use in more extreme examples than someone giving you the silent treatment on the sofa then? Yes, you can use it in lots of different contexts. In fact, originally when Marshall Rosenberg was using it, it was developed in the context of the civil rights movement in, in the US and in managing segregation within schools in the US been used in peacemaking processes all around the world, in corporate boardrooms, in individual conversations. It's a very flexible approach, but it's not something you do to someone else. It's a way of engaging with someone else that helps you to compassionately connect with them. Thank you, Sharon, for that great introduction. Fiona, what does nonviolent communication mean to you? I always find the title nonviolent communication a little bit scary because I have this idea of um, saying some really pleasant things to each other while sitting on sort of seething hostilities under the surface. And actually it's completely the opposite. It's, it's working out what is going on under the surface. And I find that really exciting. I was actually eating a kiwi fruit at breakfast the other day. And as I was peeling it, I just found myself wondering what tree it had grown on. And I asked myself, I wonder where that tree was. And it's really, I think, a little bit like that with nonviolent communication for me, that you see some behaviour, you see someone shouting, waving a fist or whatever it is. And it's just taking a moment to say, rather than, oh, that's an angry person, just saying, I wonder what's happening. I wonder where this came from. I wonder what it looked like when it started. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, how I would describe it. It's getting below the surface and asking those questions. I think it's best described as compassionate communication, simply because, as Fiona said, it's a way of looking below the surface and a way of moving away from the behaviour, the particular thing that makes you wild, that makes you want to run a mile, uh, makes you just want to uh, uh, freeze and do nothing, to try and get underneath it and find out what's going on. So how has nonviolent communication been helpful for you in your own lives? There's a, there's a really nice sort of very, very simple pattern that nonviolent communication uses, uh, which starts off by opening a conversation with an observation. And I find that really helpful because when you've either just in a spat or, 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 or had one, or maybe you've got something against someone and they possibly don't even realise that you have, it, it's a really good way of opening a conversation which isn't judgmental. So an observation without judgment is quite a skill. Um, we almost always go into judgment and we'll say, you always leave me the washing up to do and I'm fed up with it. So if you approach someone like that, they're going to kind of go into defense mode or attack mode, or probably both. So rather than that saying, when you get up immediately after eating and I'm left alone in the room, I'm doing the washing up. 
And I feel really sad about that. I feel really disappointed. So that's a different way of approaching it. Just trying to open the conversation, create space where the conversation has a chance of, of ending up better <laughs> rather than immediately um, escalating it. I think the, the way observations are really useful is if you know that it's something tangible that you can see or feel, you know, when I see jam on the worktop <laughs> or when I hear the door slamming, you focus on the behavior or the, or the trigger, if you like, in a very neutral way. And then you can move on to describing how you feel when that thing happens. So when I see jam on the worktop or when I hear a door slamming or when you shout or when I see you crying, it, it almost mentally helps you to step back, uh, imagining yourself looking at the thing and be slightly more dispassionate and objective before you move on to the next bit. So it helps you step back before you almost jump in. Thinking more broadly, why is having a framework useful? I find it useful because I am one of those people who probably would tend to um, have an internal dialogue when something's really frustrating me or annoying me. I talk myself out of it. And I've grown up thinking that's the best way to deal with stuff that you're annoyed about because if you don't say the words, you don't hurt anyone's feelings and you can never take the words back, so it's better that you don't say them. So I rant in my head, I don't say the things to the person, but then I fester. And I have been I have been given the label of ice cream in the past because what I think of as strategic retreat is actually perceived by other people in some cases as a very stony withdrawal. Mm. Um, and so how I found it useful having a framework is I pause and I go, why am I having this internal rant? Mm. Oh, it's because I'm feeling frustrated about whatever. Why, why, am I why am I frustrated? Oh, because I need some certainty about where we're going at the weekend. So um, instead of just having a rant about why can you never sort your diary out so I know what my pl plans are going to be, I could say, when I'm not sure what's happening at the weekend, I feel really uh, unsettled. Would you be willing to make a commitment to, as to what we're going to do on Saturday afternoon so that I can make a plan? And I just it, I found it transformational to be able to do that, give myself permission to say stuff out loud, but in a really constructive way so there's no hurt in it, no harm in it. I love that. Now, I, I, I think for me, I've always felt that conflict is rather unsafe so a, a, a spat or a, a bit of a, an argument is unsafe I'm, I'm not sure where it's going to go uh, and you know my instinct hasn't done very well for me in the past so I've I, I, when you're unsure as to how it's going to develop and you might fear a worse outcome it's really really lovely to know that you've got something to fall back on which is really really safe it's it's well constructed and it's something you know it might sound a little bit unnatural um but actually if it's heartfelt it is really really uh, 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 an immensely important tool that's really interesting <laughs> what if i don't want to connect compassionately with someone that i am actually finding really difficult <laughs> I... well now there is a question <laughs> yeah. somebody asked me that in a workshop uh fairly recently and they said so how do i what, what do I do then if I'm just 
so cross with the person or so frustrated with them and I've tried all this stuff and it doesn't work. How do I manage my face? <laughs> she actually said, how do I manage my face in a meeting so that everybody can't see how absolutely incandescently frustrated I am? And I said, well, one of the things that I try and do is put my curious face on because if, you're, if you put your curious face on, then you start to be curious and think, why am I so annoyed by this? And why might they be doing what they're doing that's giving me this feeling of frustration and anger? And then once you're in that curious place, you actually want to find out what's going on. So you might ask some questions or you might just pay a bit more attention to what's going on for you. And you can kind of get past the immediate frustration. And if you are genuinely curious, because there's no reason why someone should be incandescent in a meeting. Most business meetings, nobody needs to be incandescent. So if they are, there's something going on that it's useful to find out about. So curiosity is a big part of it for me. Can, can I add in on that? I, I, I have a sort of love-hate relationship. Hate is too strong a word with this concept of non-violent communication. Frustration is probably better. I love it because the thinking behind it is phenomenally hopeful. The philosophy that underlies this is that people's behaviours are not because they're bad people or because they're evil people, but they're just people. And they respond to things that are happening within them, feelings they have and needs they have. Uh, and it therefore means that the world isn't divided into good people and bad people. The world is made up of people who do good things and bad things. And the answer to Sarah's question as to why do you do it if someone doesn't is, I think, because you are worth it and because I'm worth it. Because below this is a person whose response and whose behaviour can be transformed by a process whereby one suspends the judgment about the behaviour, which is where most of us get to. We just judge the behaviour um, and pauses and then say, when you said that, I felt really upset because I need comfort. So could we perhaps sit down and talk about it or something like that? And it, it takes one out of the, the bind, out, out of the prison of reacting to the behaviours, but it builds in this value judgment that you are worth it mm. because there is below the surface this human being with whom you can engage with whom you can connect and with whom because of this process you can turn what would normally be a disaster <laughs> into something potentially transformative as the frustrating bit about it i'll say a bit more later because i find it incredibly difficult fiona's much better sharon you're brilliant and everybody else seems to just sort of click their fingers and it just flies i spend all my time lapsed into judgment no i i, I tend to my normal mode is to sort of leap in all four feet and, and, and feel really wound up and, and sort of see the red mist. Um, but I, I know that hasn't served me well. And, and so, as I said before, it's really, really helpful to have something safe because none of us have really done this on our school curriculum. Um, yeah. I didn't have really any good role model at home as to, to what to do with conflict. Uh, my family would sort of run away and cut relationships off rather than deal with them. 
And so not having any model and not having any, any education, you're just sort of left to make it up as you go along. And you think you ought to be able to do this because it's sort of normal to have conflict and we should be good at it. But actually the opposite is, is the case. And, you know, our instincts are to sort of run away uh, or fight or freeze. And none of those are particularly helpful when one's faced with a really important conversation that you need to have calmly and carefully. So if I have one of those important conversations coming up, um, what kind of steps can I go through in my, in my head to, to help me prepare for that? I'm not really good at, I, I'm, as I said earlier, I'm not really good at this at all because I find myself, because of my legal training, making judgments. And I will tend to draw conclusions about who's right or who's wrong. And I will approach the person initially through the lens of the judgment. So I'll look at the behaviour and I'll form a view. I say, that was bad. Therefore, you must apologise. And answering Sarah's question as to how you start, it may sound a little bit sort of philosophical. I hope it isn't. Is that I try and start by looking at the person first and the problem second. So if you look at the person first and then the problem second, you can look at the problem through the lens, as it were, of the person. In other words, trying to say, well, why did she say that? Why might he have done that? Uh, Rather than the other way around, which is to look at the person through the lens of the problem. Train yourself almost to, to get into the thinking of the person. It's really important for me because I don't find it easy listening to what Sharon and Fiona were saying, I don't find it easy just to step naturally into, I see, I feel, I need. And so I need a different sort of apparatus to bring to it. And that's how I try it. I think for me, it depends on what kind of conversation it is. So if it's a fairly simple, small thing, I just try and remind myself to use the, 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 the model, if you like. But if it's a big thing, so you were talking about preparing for a conversation, the implication being that there's a something significant maybe a big issue in the relationship that you want to talk about rather than a small thing that someone might have done to annoy you or a request that you want to make and in preparing for one of those conversations I probably would be thinking what would be a good outcome of this conversation do I really hope that the person has a better understanding of the impact of what they're doing on me do I want to have, have some kind of acknowledgement from them of something that they've done that might that, that's hurt me and that's the thing that's most important thinking about the goal of the conversation might then frame ha- the observation that i would make and the feeling that i talk about and the needs that i might express and it would also help me to decide whether i'm making a request of the other person or whether i'm coming into it kind of making an offer would it help if i did this so I think it depends on what, what the outcome is. So the thoughts before the conversation is, what would a good outcome look like when this conversation ends? And then therefore, what do I need to say to get us to that place? I think that's, that's really wise. I, I think this thing about what do I need, and we're not talking about um, uh, neediness, we're just talking about, or self-indulgence here, we're just talking about what are the basic needs I have from this? And what I imagine that theirs are possibly. Um, so 
do I need to have a good relationship at work? Um, I'm thinking of a relationship with my sister, which is ongoing and very, very close. But we had a, a, a big argument about something. And, and, and I knew that we needed to talk again. Um, so I approached it by observing that we hadn't left it in a good place the night before. Um, and she agreed. And I said, um, I, I think I'm feeling really angry and upset. I, I, I guess you are too. Um, and then I said, would you like to move on and put it behind us? Or would you like to have a conversation and then put it behind us? And she said, I'd like to have a conversation. So I offered to listen to her first. I said, tell me what's going on for you. And that was a really significant thing. It was quite difficult for me. I had to sort of allow her to do that. And when I really, you know, when you're having a, um, a fight or something, all you want to do is get the other person to hear your point of view. But actually just suppressing that feeling and say, you talk first and I will listen. And um, we did. And then she listened to me. It created a really good space between us. And we went not agreeing with each other, but but really connecting with each other and loving each other. And so, so agreement wasn't the point, but connecting with each other and understanding each other was. Yeah, and I'd just add to that, I had a conversation with someone the other day who was preparing for a difficult conversation with someone. And after an hour of talking about what might be the avenues into this difficult conversation, she said, so I can't make him do X, Y, and Z then. <laughs> And I said, no, the whole point of this approach is that anything that either of you agreed to do in in the spirit of, you know, fixing the broken bits of the relationship has to be that you're choosing to do it. Neither of you can make the other do something that they don't want to do. Because even if they briefly agree just for the sake of agreement to do something to please you, if it's not something that comes based on understanding then it's not going to be sustainable. So I think the spirit of MVC is, is there's, there has to be humility in it. And um, that's an aspect of what you're talking about, Fiona, is like I'm willing to go second. I'm willing to hear the other person's perspective first, even though from where I'm sitting, I think I'm in the right. The tricky thing about that is that you have to also not be a doormat. <laughs> I love the definition of assertiveness in MVC terms. It's where you give equal value to your needs and the other person's needs. Whereas aggressive is I'm putting my needs before yours and passive is I'm putting your needs before mine. Assertive is saying both of our needs have value and I'm coming into this conversation recognizing that I know what I would really like, but you're probably going to have some stuff that you want to. And it sort of creates a level playing field, which I think is really helpful it's interesting you talking about needs and assertiveness there because something i've often observed is that it's not necessarily clear what you need or what you think the other person might need how do you work out what your needs are well i i must say that um i read marshall rosenberg's book on nonviolent communication and there is a really helpful list which uh, writes down uh, lists a whole lot of feelings and a whole lot of needs and i think without that i would find it very hard to actually pinpoint what my needs are or my feelings because we don't really go around identifying those things or thinking about them um so actually just matching 
um, a need from the list to what I'm what what's going on for me is has been really helpful as a practical thing. Yeah, I worked out relatively recently that I have a high need for autonomy. In situations now where my need for autonomy is not being met, I kind of recognise what it feels like. Feel slightly edgy. I feel slightly impatient and and frustrated. So I've started to pay attention to when I'm feeling those feelings. Say, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm in a client meeting and a client starts to give me a very prescriptive list of things they want me to deliver for them as their consultant. I, can, I feel those feelings and I've learned to, to, to frame it and, and because I know I'm feeling frustrated. I, I, I might say, I can hear that you probably need the confidence that you're going to get the outcome that you want from this piece of work for the fees that you're paying. And I can hear that you really value detail and that it's really important for you that there's a really clear plan and that you can be confident that it's going to be delivered. Would it help if after this meeting I came back with a plan and if I reassure you that once we've committed to those deadlines, they will be delivered? Might be not in exactly the way that you've just outlined, but I can give you a commitment that they'll be delivered. What I'm trying to do there is I'm trying to meet my need for autonomy, which is I want to do it my way. But I'm willing to meet your need for certainty and clarity and, you know, that your money is going to be well spent, but without kind of naming it. Okay, so it's not like this only works when everybody knows what NVC is and we're all clued up. It sounds like this is something that you can use in in daily life in basically any conversation where you're negotiating in some way. Yes, this approach um, doesn't have to be a self-conscious, let's all sit down and do NVC or whatever. It's something which can be casually and fairly relaxedly can form part of the fabric of how you think uh, and how you feel. I find it incredibly difficult to work out what my feelings are (laughs) and what my needs are. So the kids at home, typically, when Fiona is saying, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, I'll be sitting in a corner with my head in whatever it is I'm reading, a moth book or whatever happens to be currently on the sort of the top of the agenda. And eventually, um, Fiona and the kids will be talking, and the kids say, Dad, get a light, get involved. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Now, my tendency will be to say, well, I think he's right, she's wrong, or whatever. Uh, And they say, we're not interested in that. But what's going on inside you? And so I've struggled with this in trying to get a grip on what is there. Um, It may be, I think it may partly be, because to express a need is by definition to be vulnerable. Mm. And need is that which makes us need, (laughs) which makes us vulnerable. And to be made vulnerable, it's like a sort of taking a plaster off a scab. When the scab comes off as well, it hurts because you need something. And you don't want to express needs, or at least I find it not very nice to express needs because it makes me vulnerable. The special, one of the special things about this NBC thing, when we make ourselves vulnerable, when we risk that vulnerability, we become lovable. And at the heart of this process, I think, is that when we engage need to need, vulnerability to vulnerability, we become lovable. Why? Because we all need things. It can be profound, not always. I mean, it can be disastrous (laughs) sometimes in my experience, but but there have been sufficient occasions for it to be transformative. This is worth continuing to practice on. It's a lifetime thing. It's not something you learn at the end of a book. 
I just want to add in here that um, in case anyone's thinking it's, it's, it's not genuine, it's a sort of a rule book or a toolkit that you just bring out and, and, and you tick the boxes. It's, it's not that at all. It's a, a framework that keeps you safe. Um, it's incredibly respectful. It allows genuine connection. And if it wasn't genuine, people would sniff it out in a moment. Uh, and, you know, when I, I have done this with my kids and, and they sniff things out, you know, if I if I do anything differently, they'll say, Mom, you've been on a course. What is it? <laughs> they are so quick at putting their fingers on any change. So I'll, be, I'll, I'll just come out and I say, yeah, would you mind me trying this? I, I really believe it's helpful, um, but I'm not going to cover it up. And I genuinely want to do this. I genuinely want to connect. I want to try something different. So don't be embarrassed about doing it differently either. I have to ask, Stephen, when you said it, ha it can be disastrous, could you tell me a bit more about that? <laughs> no, I'm not sure I want to at all. This is all about how to do envy, so you know how not to. And I'm probably not the person to talk about how, uh, uh, how to do it, because so often... It doesn't work. It probably involves um, me. Well, <laughs> well Fiona, Fiona and I have very different approaches to conflict. She tends to go in, as she said, all feet first. I tend to run away. And so I have to learn how to engage with, with feelings and needs. When I said it can be disastrous, um, it, it usually I feel a complete prep because I will say I feel humiliated or I feel betrayed. But in fact, I probably don't feel that at all. That's me judging. You betrayed me. You humiliated me. You insulted me. You abused you, whatever the, the judgment is. And I put the feel word before it. So I feel that. So when I'm doing the stuff at home, occasionally with Fiona, she says, no, 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 no. Got that one wrong. That's not a feeling. I say, oh, my goodness. All right. It isn't a feeling. Well, what do I feel then? Uh, I feel humiliated. No, no, no. You don't feel humiliated. She says, you so you, someone has humiliated you. So I say, well, I feel lonely. Ah, she says, that's better. Or bad. Yeah, okay. But just to say this, just talking about this now, I felt, as I said, I feel sad or I feel lonely. Something within me said, oh, I'm not sure I want to express that because it makes me vulnerable. So just so I'm totally clear, what is a feeling? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if this is technically correct, but I think a feeling is, is an emotion. So angry, frustrated, sad, disappointed are feelings. Am I right in thinking that the significance of keeping to those actual emotions that, as Stephen has said, do make you f feel more vulnerable? The significance of that is that anything else, which is actually an opinion, implies judgment. And, and that creates quite a different reaction. I think that is the secret. So that this, if, as Stephen said, if we call this compassionate communication, and if I start with, I feel betrayed, then the other person's response has to be, so you think I betrayed you. And then the conversation goes down an unhelpful route in terms of what betrayal is and who did what, who said what, and I feel really when I heard that you'd shared that information, that private secret information, that precious conversation that we'd had, and I heard it coming back from someone else, I felt really sad, I felt really hurt, I felt really disappointed, I felt bereft. 
the person who hears that is much more likely to really connect with the impact of what they've done than if you say, I feel betrayed. That's great. That's really yeah. good. That's really good. Yeah, can I just add to that? Occasionally in the work I do as a mediator, slightly different from what we're talking about here, I'm helping other people have their own difficult conversations rather than them face-to-face having the conversation. But if I have two people who may be haven't, they're litigating against each other, they maybe they haven't spoken, sometimes for years, and the mediation is an opportunity for them to have a conversation, they'll sometimes sometimes say to me, well, look, how do we have that conversation? Are there any clues that you could give? And I will sometimes say, try and avoid starting a sentence with the word you. As simple as that. Don't use the word you at the beginning of a sentence. Why? Because in a conflict situation, the word you will almost certainly lead to a judgment. And while it is possible that after the words you come the words are a really nice person, that is unlikely (laughs) to put it no higher. So if you consciously avoid the word you, they said, well, then they say, well, what do I say? What do I talk about if I can't talk about you? Why didn't you start some sentences with the word I and then follow it with feel? Try and avoid think, but I felt. And something simple, simple, simple like that in terms of helping others have conversations, we can apply in our conversations directly with someone else. And I think the whole pattern of this is is taking the judgment out of all of this conversation, because that's mm. what inflames, mm. that's exactly. what escalates things. Uh, so in the observation, you take judgment out. In the feeling, you take judgment out. Uh, and, and it's a pure emotion. Um, and then you have a real chance of getting under the surface and, 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 and getting to that place of connection. What do they need? What's happening for them? Why is why has the behaviour happened, um, and and it just releases it unlocks um, a different kind of conversation. Now, the person who trained me in NBC said, "Under every behaviour is a beautiful need," mm. and I found that such a powerful idea that no matter how unpleasant the behaviour is, mm. it's driven by a feeling that someone has because of an unmet need, mm. um, and so. If you can hear abusive language or you can see behavior that you really feel uncomfortable with or really don't like in a way that says underneath that behavior is a beautiful need, I wonder what that is. That can be really powerful. However, it's really important to stay safe. And so it wouldn't be appropriate if someone was engaging in in violence or whatever against you to be wondering what beautiful need is underneath it because you might be putting yourself in danger as a result. So we're not saying that this way of connecting and communicating with people should ever put you in physical or psychological or emotional danger. It's not a panacea. It doesn't solve every difficult problem. It doesn't solve every difficult relationship or every difficult conversation. And especially when you're learning how to do it first, I'd say keep it really simple. It's the crumbs on the worktop or it's the really small things so that you can kind of practice and get comfortable with the technique and then maybe use it with more challenging conversations. I think that would probably be sensible. You, you need to take care of yourself in thinking about a conversation, particularly if you're in a conflict situation where you are planning to try and do something about it, thinking about this NVC model. Um, there is pre-planning, there's thinking about it and just working out what is appropriate. 
And what we've said here about being assertive, looking after our own needs, as well as trying to work out what the others are, may cause one to say, do you know what? I don't think this is sensible to go into this. Maybe I need help. And in those circumstances where you pull in a facilitator or mediator, a third person who stands between, as it were, the two of you. And that's a way of perhaps engaging in those harder conversations when it's a bit too risky uh, for yourself to, 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 to do it on your own. That feels like really important to note and to acknowledge. As I've been listening, I think it's really struck me as we've been talking that there's both the model, which is observation, feeling, need, request. But underneath that, there is this philosophy of trying to see the person as more important than the problem. And this desire to compassionately connect with someone and the beautiful needs that they have behind their behaviour. So if someone was listening um, to this podcast and wants to give NVC a go, what would you suggest to them? What's your top tip? I would probably say my top tip was be curious. Before you make a judgment, before you label someone, before you think the behaviour is identity, just say to yourself, I wonder what's happening underneath the surface. I wonder where this started from. That feels like a really powerful phrase to remember. Mm. That behaviour is not identity and that curiosity helps us to dive underneath the surface of what is happening to find out what is going on both in the other person and ourselves. This has been Unlocking Conflict, brought to you by Crux, Peacewell and Wandsworth Mediation Service. We've put a link to an online list of feelings and needs in the session notes for this episode along with some great YouTubes of Marshall Rosenberg himself. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the power of listening, really good listening, to transform difficult conversations, and what happens when we listen badly. You can find all our episodes at crux.org.uk or on the main podcasting sites. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments or feedback, feel free to email us at unlockingconflict at crux.org.uk. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you.